tech, cars, machines. Subscribe here or at gtkpartners.com. Hello. Hey, can everybody come on and take your seats? We're going to get started. It's a great turnout. I hope everyone had an awesome Thanksgiving. I did. It kind of feels like we should just be on vacation for the rest of the year, doesn't it? I think so. That would be... I tend to start a company every winter vacation. That's my... Give me, set me aside and give me nothing to do for a while. Uh, also, well, welcome all, everyone. I'm Josh Baer. I'm the founder of Capital Factory and love to, my pleasure to welcome you all here tonight. Who's here for the first time? Awesome, a bunch of you. Well, welcome. Um, Capital Factory is the center of gravity for entrepreneurs in Texas and here in Austin. Uh, we have four floors of this building uh, and all day long and all night, there's entrepreneurs and technologists and, and investors and other people here uh, meeting at places like this and meeting each other and working. Uh, and, uh, and then we do a lot of work. We have big, a big team, about 100 people that work with them to help connect them to the, typically the people they need most, which is money, customers, and other people, talent that they need to hire. And it's been really awesome as the Army Futures Command came here uh, in particular, and it brought some other really interesting partners like BAE and Fast Labs. And that's the customer's side of this. And they can you know, serve some couple different parts. One, they can, they're big companies, they can buy stuff, but a lot of them are also channels to whole bunches of other customers and can help take products to market and help startups scale. Uh, and that's been really exciting to watch happen. And BAE and Fast Labs has been actually one of the best partners in that. They were one of the first to come here on site when uh, when Army Futures Command came. And they're actually working with a lot of the real startups here. There's things happening between them. And that's why they're here tonight at events like this, is actually to meet people and innovators that are working on real things that they can they can plug in. So um, we're really glad to have them here. I think this is the third event like this that, that they've done so far. And I'm sure there's going to be, uh, I know we'll keep doing more. Um, but but uh, but it's uh, it's it's always great to see it bring in again you know lots of new faces and people that maybe hadn't been here before so glad, well, glad to welcome you so uh, I'm going to turn it over to Bo Duarte who runs uh, Fast Labs here in Austin and uh, we're he's going to hit off for the rest of the night so let me hit it off to Bo thanks Josh all right so I'll give a, a quick intro and a welcome the folks. Uh, who have uh, maybe not come to one of our events before. Uh, we were a little bit leery about the, the Monday after Thanksgiving. We considered bringing in uh, leftover turkey, but we didn't have any uh, within the company. But um, uh, thanks for coming out here. And as Josh mentioned, our series is titled Defense Innovation at Startup Speed. And so what we are trying to do here is to educate you a little bit about what's going on at BAE Systems, identify some opportunities for startups or universities in the crowd um, that uh, might have interest in one of the technologies that we're talking about and uh, have some conversations that could lead to further collaboration or introductions. Uh, and also, uh, really just to contribute to the defense innovation ecosystem here in Austin, uh, which we are, are proud to help support. Uh, we all play a, a part here in identifying uh, the opportunities, working with the customer and, and really, we all serve the same ultimate customer, uh, the men and women in uniform. And so we're very proud to do our, our part for that. So before we get started, uh, just a show of hands uh, for folks in the audience who uh, come from big companies. All right, a handful. Uh, small companies, startups. All right, a little bit more. Um, from the government sector. All right, a handful, guys. Uh, university uh, students or professors. 
All right, outstanding. Uh, veterans in the audience. All right, thanks for your service. Just out of curiosity, uh, Air Force, uh, Navy, um, Marine Corps. All right, a handful and Army. Uh, all right, I'll try. I'll try to speak slowly tonight for the Army folks in the room. Alrighty, so tonight we're going to talk about autonomy. We've brought in some experts from around the country who are able to fly in, uh, amazingly enough, with all the weather, go weather going on around the country. And we've got an initial presentation um, from Dr. Matt Henry, who is part of our Autonomy Controls and Estimation Group uh, just north of Boston. Uh, he has been working as a principal investigator on a couple of DARPA projects, and he is interested in autonomous applications uh, where maybe you don't have the full story, you don't have uh, complete data, and it's in a very challenging and demanding environment. And today he's gonna talk to you about one of his uh, projects in particular that I think you will find of interest. Once he's done talking, uh, we're gonna have a panel um, of uh, four folks. I brought in my, my friend, the ringer from California, um, who, uh, Ali Tabibian, who has done a lot of work uh, with venture capital and startups and folks who are interested in autonomy, mostly from a commercial application uh, viewpoint. Um, and so uh, he will help tease out some great discussion points. Uh, we've got representatives from BAE Systems, uh, from the Army, and from uh, the academia world at uh, UT Austin here. And uh, he'll introduce the full panel in a little bit. But without any further ado, I'd like to hand this over to Dr. Matt Henry uh, from BAE Systems. Here you go, Matt. So, uh, <laughs> Matt Henry from, I'm actually works in Arlington, Virginia. And so I'm one of uh, a number of chief scientists in our in the group uh, that we call uh, Autonomy Controls Estimation. And uh, just give you kind of an overview of what the group does. BAE Systems is largely an aerospace company for those of you who aren't familiar with the company. And uh, I mean literally aerospace, mostly aeronautical really. So mostly aircraft. And so most of the work we do in autonomy really is geared towards uh, aircraft, uh, whether manned or unmanned aircraft. And um, autonomy is both uh, geared towards uh, literally making the aircraft uh, uh, conduct missions, uh, fly routes, and so forth, uh, that sort of take into account different kinds of uh, threat and other circumstances that might need to um, weigh in on how it conducts a mission. It also uh, governs how onboard systems operate. So things, things like uh, sensors, uh, fusion systems, um, sensors that can be managed and uh, potentially uh, uh, sort of pointed out, if you like, different kinds of objects of interest, uh, different uh, sensors of different platforms, different aircraft themselves, or coordination autonomy as well. So there's a wide range of things that we consider to be under the umbrella of autonomy. And of course, autonomy uh, as a discipline or as a capability uh, is largely a controls enterprise. I'm a controls engineer myself. I mean, it's largely a controls, sort of an extension of control systems, which encompasses itself uh, estimation theory, uh, other kinds of uh, sense-making uh, technology areas that uh, really allow the system then to understand the environment in which it's operating and make decisions that are, that are really uh, appropriate for those, those circumstances and also the missions that it's, that it's conducting. So my job here tonight is to kind of talk to you guys about some projects we're working on uh, I guess to, to, to get some excitement going on in, in your group about working with uh, my company and uh, also to uh, get you guys thinking about solutions to a, a really hard problem that I'm currently working in. And uh, so the problem we're working in particularly has to do with uh, ground systems. So as I mentioned before, we are largely an aerospace company. And I think to a large extent, autonomy, at least in the, the, the defense uh, industry, has largely been, been sort of deployed in the aircraft or air, aerospace domain. 
uh, more than any other domain. You can make an argument that an enabled domain is starting to catch up a little bit. But the ground domain is, is one domain which, uh, which autonomy really hasn't made a lot of progress because there's a lot of complicated uh, attributes to the uh, sort of ground uh, mission space that make autonomy difficult because there's a lot of nuance in the environment that you're operating, a lot of nuance in sort of agent-on-agent uh, -agent interactions, whether those are friendly agents or not-so-friendly agents, nuance in the environment, nuance in the state of the mission that you're executing. Uh, they make it difficult to really make a system fully autonomous. And so I wanted to talk about a few of those attributes and th the reason why this is a hard problem for us and uh, solicit ideas from the group here, uh, either through me or through, through Bo and his colleagues that are down here in Austin, uh, to help us maybe help make this, this problem more, more tractable. So I'll come back to this example problem in a few minutes. So right now, to a large extent, as I'm sure most of you know, uh, with respect to ground vehicles, autonomy, or, or, or really, uh, if you like, uh, systems that don't have a person driving them really are remote or teleoperated, remote controlled. And that is still largely true. These systems, there's no real autonomy here. It's really just about a, a system that's going to go out and conduct a mission. In this case, it's a, an EOD, uh, Explosives Ordnance Disposal Robot, it goes out and interrogates uh, an IED or some other explosives um, uh, that's, that's found and tries to uh, help the, in this case, the EOD technician to understand what is going on with that particular uh, payload. But it's largely a remote-operated op uh, sort of paradigm in terms of uh, these, how these systems are working with, with people. Uh, the very best systems right now are really limited largely to waypoint following. To a large extent, the ones that are most successful are the ones, and this is how, largely how commercial companies are doing it also, the ones for which uh, cost maps have been pre-computed. What I mean by that is that uh, the systems have uh, taken advantage of many, many gigabytes, terabytes of data that describe the environments in which they're going to operate, describe sort of the features of those, of those environments, and then the onboard sensors then allow the system to discriminate between those features which are, which are there persistently and those features that are, that are different to help them understand what's new about the environment, what it needs to reason about, and so forth. And so waypoint following um, is kind of the um, state of the art in the sense that it's, it is the best we can do uh, reliably. I would say the very best of the best are systems that are able to compute wave, uh, these so-called cost maps uh, on the fly. Those are pretty unusual. That's hard to do. And even when that's done, it's done slowly. So these vehicles can drive fairly, uh, not very fast. And also, they can only reason about environments with certain degrees of complexity. And so even solving this problem, uh, having a, a vehicle traverse a terrain and conduct a mission in an environment that is, um, that is not well known is, is difficult. Uh, note this vehicle is not driving on a road, so there's a lot of things about this environment that make it difficult. One of them, of course, is just the, the, this, the, the surface uh, composition, which makes it difficult, but that's actually not, not, that's not the, that's a fairly straightforward thing to do. The, the, the harder parts have to do with obstacles, uh, having to do with uh, negative obstacles, understanding uh, whether, a, for example, a puddle is, is uh, actually covering a very large uh, crater or, or, or hole, or if it's traversable or not, or if there's uh, uh, sort of non-traversable uh, obstacles behind uh, 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 shrubbery, the other, other kinds of things that are, that are including the visibility of obstacles, and uh, things like that, that make it difficult to really uh, traverse this kind, of, this kind of terrain. I would say the, the state of the research is uh, such that uh, we have the capacity now to to sort of pre-compute uh, mission uh, sort of uh, components that we can sort of string together to allow these machines to operate well with, with uh, infantry. In this case, this is an exercise out at 29 Palms. There's you see some Marines that are entering a uh, facility, a, 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 mock, a mock building. And you can see um, 
it's difficult to see, but in the lower uh, right-hand corner of the, of the photograph here, there's actually one of the small UGVs that is uh, operating in conjunction with the Marines to provide some ISR support to their operation. And so uh, this vehicle is, is following waypoints, although it's not, it's, it's actually computing some waypoints along the, along the way. But what it's really doing, that's, that's more interesting, is it is executing behaviors that have been given to it in advance of this mission uh, uh, playing out. And so in this case, the, the vehicle is uh, driving in a, in a pattern that was determined to be advantageous to this particular operation and is choosing what pattern to, to uh, execute based on uh, the, where it is, where the Marines are, and uh, where the threat is, which is detecting any threats. So what we really, what we really want to do, though, that, that even, that, even that degree of, of autonomy, where it's able to follow waypoints or follow some pre-planned mission segments, doesn't really allow for very natural, intuitive teaming between uh, people and machines. And the reason is that all of that stuff, all that understanding of the mission, of the environment, of the tasks, have to be given to the system before it starts the mission. And so it doesn't, it's, it's very brittle in that sense. It doesn't allow the machine to really have any understanding of why it's doing what it's doing. And so the holy grail, so to speak, is one in which the machine can really understand from a set of high-level objectives and constraints what it is it's supposed to be doing. Uh, and also understanding that, that includes understanding where other machines are, where, uh, where its friendly uh, uh, human partners are, and where threats are, whether those threats are well-known or sort of uh, hypothesized or, or suspected. Uh, but understanding how to interact with other agents, other machines in, in the uh, environment is as important as understanding what the mission objectives are. And there's an element uh, of this kind of, um, this kind of um, autonomy that has to do with not only uh, carrying out the mission objectives, but understanding how to preserve oneself, how to keep, how to keep itself safe from threatening uh, fire, from other kinds of uh, danger. And so uh, being able to balance, for example, uh, mission objectives with self-preservation is a difficult thing to, to really help the machine understand. And the ways in which it should preserve itself is difficult, but understanding how to interact with the, with the other agents in the environment, understanding how those, that presents an overall sort of mission space and understanding the state of the mission at any one time and how it should proceed in accordance with its mission objectives and self-preservation objectives is really the, the way we, where we want to go eventually. And so... <clears throat> A big part of this is really understanding the, the mission, uh, understanding uh, where every element of the, of the, of the mission uh, sort of um, uh, is, whether that's uh, other agents, whether it's uh, conditions of the environment, whether it's conditions of mission objectives, whether those, those, those things are. And so part of it is uh, it's an organic sensor, is being able to see various attributes of the environment, see various attributes of the mission, uh, being able to understand then also from other external sources of intelligence what the state of the world is at any one time, synthesizing that state of the world in such a way that can understand uh, what it needs to do next based on what's going on now. So people do that sort of naturally, although even in a, in a small unit uh, formation like this, you still have a hierarchy where a, a fire team leader or a squad leader or a platoon leader is going to tell his uh, Marines what to do um, given the situation. Those Marines need to carry out those tasks uh, based on, on uh, the circumstances that they're faced with. Machines don't do that naturally. Machines uh, follow instructions naturally. And so having them understand what their situation is and what they should be doing based on the situation and based on what their partners are doing, which can change as circumstances change, um, that's really the difficult part of this problem that we want to, want to address. And so another attribute, another sort of part of this discussion is there are different ways in which machines and people can work together. 
Um, so if we think about, uh, you know, currently, the way we think about this is we have machine uh, groups largely working independent of their human counterparts. And that works well because machines don't always understand exactly uh, what human's intent is or what, where a person is sometimes even if, if that person's not well uh, observed. Um, but intent is really the hard part for the machine to understand. If, uh, for example, if, uh, <clears throat> if you're a fire team and you're coming up to uh, a sort of danger zone and you need your fire team, your squad, to, to cross the danger zone and establish security on the far side, understanding uh, the way in which those Marines or soldiers are going to carry out that sort of uh, providing near, near and far security to cross the danger zone, uh, the way in which they're going to uh, take position on the, on the near and far side, is, um, is difficult to infer only from the soldiers and Marines' position. And uh, maybe you can infer some of that from the tempo of the mission. Maybe you can infer some of that from the locations of the Marines or soldiers. But it's difficult for a machine to inter interpret the, uh, the intent. Uh, and part of the reason is that machines don't understand signals very well. Uh, Marines, when they do this, they actually signal each other with, with, with bumps or other kinds of uh, low audible signals allow them, allow them, the other team members of the team to understand what they're going to do so they understand how to execute that part of the mission. So machines don't understand that. So sometimes it's better for them to, to operate sort of separately because they can communicate with each other in a way that allows them to understand what their uh, sort of tactic is going to be, how they're going to execute that part of their mission. Um, that's dangerous in some ways because the, then the machines are often left to defend themselves. And often they don't understand how to take cover or how to... Um, themselves from being observed by the enemy. And so it can be advantageous then for the Marine machines to be working in close collaboration with the soldiers and Marines. And so uh, that uh, introduces more complication, but also offers some, uh, some benefits. So <clears throat> part of the study that we're in engaged in is understanding what the real trade-offs are in terms of operating uh, separately or as part of the close form unit and what the uh, perception requirements are, the, the understanding requirements are, and how the machines that could be used to execute those mission elements uh, with that degree, it's a limited degree of understanding. And so really, our, we can measure this in a variety of ways uh, as we make, sort of make progress. What the Army and the Marine Corps are really interested in, though, is in enabling machines to uh, act as a force multiplier for their, their fire teams or squads or platoons in terms of uh, deep, uh, enabling those Marines or soldiers to have a greater depth of control in the, in the battle space, uh, be able to understand better what's going on, uh, being able to provide... Uh, greater situational awareness to call in indirect fires, for example, is a big part of how uh, soldiers and Marines operate when they're dealing with, with uh, enemy forces that are not immediately within their range of weapons. Um, <clears throat> so those are kind of there's other measures of effectiveness you, can, you, could, you could use to evaluate how all well these systems are working. Uh, survivability is one and other, other ways to measure this. But those are all ways of measuring how well the system is working. The challenges we need to work on in terms of understanding uh, what new technologies be brought to bear to enable these, uh, these kinds of um, uh, capabilities have to do with perception. And uh, as I mentioned before, mobility is, is one that's uh, given a lot of attention, but uh, is not a solved problem. Um, <clears throat> we work in the space largely of uh, maneuver autonomy and mission management in the sense that we tend to uh, treat uh, platforms as being contained units. And we, we, we want to more operate on the, at the level of uh, so we're telling those platforms where to go and what to do, and not so much how to do those things that they're being asked to do. So the, the uh, trade-off between the platform-level autonomy and the mission-level autonomy is one of uh, we, we work with often. Um, the other part of this that we need to be concerned about is understanding how the soldiers and Marines are interacting with the systems and how much load we can expect those soldiers 
our Marines to, to really take on themselves, recognizing that uh, other people will intuitively understand how the communication should be interpreted in terms of carrying out a mission. A machine isn't always under, doesn't always have the same sort of level understanding of what the mission is or how it's going to be carried out and what, the signal, what, a, what a signal might mean in that context. And so providing a mechanism that allows a soldier or Marine to communicate with machines in a natural way, so the machines can sort of understand the context and the, um, the interpretation of a signal is a big part of this uh, problem space. And really, uh, as technology developers, our goal is not to prescribe how these systems will be used. Our goal is to provide the systems with enough capability that they can be used in different ways by the, by the warfighter. Because the warfighter will always find new ways in which to use any system. And so we want to provide as much flexibility as we can in terms of their, their utility. So I'll close with this sort of example scenario. So you can see here, uh, urban landscape, um, clearly uh, we have, uh, we t tend to use red and blue to, to correspond to enemy and friendly forces respectively. We have a variety of different kinds of platforms in this environment, different kinds of sensors and so forth. And we have also different, a mix of actors. We have, we have human actors and machine actors. And so the, the problem here is um, <clears throat> if we want to really provide a, a force multiplication to this platoon, this, this company or whatever size unit this is, without, without forcing one of those soldiers or Marines to act as a, as a babysitter for these set of, set of systems, and the systems have to be able to not only um, understand what their mission is and how to carry out the mission, they need to be able to construct and understand the mission as the mission proceeds. And that includes things like being able to uh, estimate uh, where the threat is, which is pretty straightforward. In fact, that's pretty straightforward. What's less straightforward is being able to, to anticipate where the threat might materialize based on historical information, uh, based on, an, on some, some notion of intuition the machine might have in terms of where the threat has been, where the threat is likely to go based on the threat's um, the, the, the assumed threats uh, objectives and the possibilities that are open to the, the threats. So in other words, viewing the world as a set of opportunities and constraints, uh, that allows the machine to have a better understanding of what the situation really is, allow them to gain an understanding of what the threat is likely to, to, to materialize, and then uh, decide what to do in that context. But we also want to um, use the machines to uh, take the load off the people in terms of some of the more mundane tasks. So uh, a recent study we did uh, indicated that something on the order of one half of the uh, firepower of a, of a Marine squad is used on a daily basis to resupply the squad, which is an obscene amount of firepower that's wasted in terms of just supplying, providing resupply or overwatch for the resupply mission. And so being able to allow these machines to conduct those kinds of missions, uh, these non-lethal missions, to allow the, the fire team or squad or platoon to operate at twice the effective level be a huge multiplication factor for, 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 the, uh, for the, that, the small unit. And so really understanding how we can gain like benefits that really have a, a large uh, multiplicative factor is, is our goal. And uh, it's, it's a matter of really then of getting the systems the ability to understand how they can contribute in a way that allows them to carry out these tasks without having to be told what to do and how to adjust to changing to change circumstances both in terms of their mission uh, execution, but also in terms of understanding how they can uh, protect themselves from being uh, damaged or, or otherwise uh, um, disabled. All right, thanks, Matt. Uh, we're gonna thank you. We're gonna save the questions uh, for either Matt or the panelists until the end. And so at this point, I'd like the the panelists to come on up here and uh, have a seat. Um, and hopefully, you know who you are, panelists. 
that's that's uh, that's a joke. Um, and and I will introduce um, a little bit more depth. Our panel moderator is uh, Mr. Ali Tabibian, who's a Stanford classmate of mine who's been working finance in Silicon Valley for about 25 years for direct principal investment as well as M&A. Uh, and also, uh, he's got a keen interest in the intersection of hardware and software in innovative ways, especially for robotics and autonomous vehicles. Uh, he produces a, a podcast called Tech Car Machines. Uh, he's got a lot of interaction with companies in the commercial space um, that are uh, investigating autonomous technologies. And th I thought he would be a great moderator for the panel to kind of uh, do some crosstalk with uh, defense applications. I think we, we stand to learn uh, both sides uh, from, from what is being done in the other sectors. And so I will turn the mic over to Ali and let him introduce the rest of the panel. Thanks. Great. Thank you very much, Bo. Uh, one of the fun facts I always tell about our firm is that uh, two of my partners and I were in the same freshman dorm together, and this is going back in a matter of decades. Uh, sophomore year, we lived in a dorm where Bo Duarte happened to be, uh, be a resident. Years and years later, I was watching uh, one of the presidents make his speech, and he was standing in front of um, an aircraft which said Captain Bo Duarte on it. And I thought, wait a minute, I, I know this guy. So I found him, and uh, about two years later, Bo was kind enough when he was the uh, program manager for the Navy's uh, autonomous drone program. He was kind enough to speak at our conference, which is a similar event in Palo Alto, and I'm very happy to be able to reciprocate. Uh, hopefully, we'll have a, both an intellectually interesting uh, conversation for you here, but uh, given the mix of the truck crowd, I do want to try to, as much as possible, really bring home the commercial opportunity of everything that we're going to discuss here to our participants here. Um, why don't I go ahead and make a very brief introduction of everyone, and then instead of having you introduce yourselves, we can just actually go into, uh, into some of what you'd like to discuss here. So at the far corner, we have uh, Dr. Paul uh, Decker, who's the Deputy Chief Roboticist of the U.S. Army, and he joins us from Michigan. Did I get anything wrong there? No? So far, so good? Okay, all right. We're off to a good start, folks. Uh, we have Jerry, uh, Dr. Jerry Willits, who's the Vice President and General Manager of Fast Labs. So you're based here in Austin, Jerry, is that correct? Uh, Boston. In Boston. Okay, close enough. All right, great. <laughs> and uh, and uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Ufuk uh, Topku, who's an Assistant Professor in the Department of Aerospace Engineering and Engineering Mechanics, at the University of Texas at Austin. I'm hoping you're in Austin. Is that, is that correct, Dr. Great, great. Thank you very much. You know, uh, I'm going to start with Jerry. Uh, and Jerry, I'm going to ask you if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about Fast Labs. If you think the audience is uh, already aware of it, that's okay. We can, uh, we can skip it. But in particular, I'd like you to discuss uh, the scouting function. That's one of the two key functions of Fast Labs. And what experience and success have you had in the past in terms of how you've integrated some of the people like those present into the audience, into your programs, and ultimately into a commercial environment at BAE? There we go. It's green. All right. So first off, thanks for having uh, us here tonight. It's a, it's a great event. Um, so Fast Labs, uh, it's relatively a new name. Um, we rebranded how we do R&D and BA systems uh, a year and a half ago uh, to signal our pivot as we've transformed to a commercial CTO model. So Fast Labs today is more representative of what you would find at a Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson, the historical aerospace and defense company. Uh, just a little story about Fast Labs. Um, each of the letters uh, represents um, companies that have been acquired. That forms the single unified R&D organization in BA systems today. So the T 
in uh, the fast uh, represents Tracor, uh, which is a heritage Austin, right? And I think we are uh, the largest uh, defense employer here in, in Austin uh, for a private company. So uh, a little bit about our approach. Um, so consistent with uh, taking a look at where the money is, uh, U.S. government right today accounts for about 8% of the R&D investment in the U.S. and 3% in that of the world. But most of the aerospace and defense industry is stuck in a Cold War space race mentality, where they, the belief is, is that the U.S. government is the dominant R&D investor. So recognizing that and the need to go faster and with innovation is that we have a uh, completely dedicated team that is searching for dual-use technologies that map to our technology strategy. So we have, uh, like again, like a Cisco and a commercial company, we have a tech strategy that looks at the different markets and customers we serve, and we need to be one step ahead of all of our businesses. And in doing so, we are very deliberate in determining what we need to uh, acquire because of the dual-use opportunity or given the custom military nature or something that we have to still do within the uh, national defense infrastructure. So with that, on the acquire side, right, we come to venues like this. We're very active here in Austin. We're very active actually across the U.S., working with large accelerators. And we basically bring them our problems. And we talk to them about the challenges we have. Um, and we look for the technology that maps to what's in our portfolio of needs. Based upon that, we provide subject matter experts and we essentially will help validate a channel to market for which venture capitalists and private equity investors uh, can then apply funds, mature the technology, use it for the commercial use, we'll use it for the military, and we'll put it into high-volume production at any of our uh, worldwide factories that we have. So that's the basic model that we've pivoted to. The tech scouting group, Bo representing here, Austin, uh, Dr. Francesca Shiris-Capuzzo is our head uh, uh, scouting. She's based out of Boston and very active in the ecosystem uh, there. And this is core to sort of the business that we're going to. So we're about two years into this uh, um, experiment. And as it stands today, we're probably working with the better part of 500 companies. Some of them we fund at a very small level. But our, our desire and our means is to connect them with people who've got a lot more money than we do uh, with the desire to very rapidly mature that technology and, and at the end of the day, bring it to the warfighter as quick as possible. Great. Thank you very much. If you could pass the microphone to Paul, my next question is uh, for Paul. Paul, two things I'd like you to touch on, and then we'll come back and expand on them. One is uh, uh, what goes on in uh, Michigan where you work in, in your particular uh, unit. And if you could at the end just list the key enabling technologies and central challenges of, uh, of the unit that you are uh, Deputy Chief Scientist for. Okay. All right, so good evening. Um, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, first time ever being to, to the Capitol factory, so it's a great, great venue. Um, okay, so up in uh, up in Michigan, so formerly known as TARDEC, uh, under the Army Futures Command, we're now known as known as GVSC. So it's AFC, CCDC, GVSC. You guys all got that? <laughs> nice and short. Uh, so we for, we're formerly known as TARDEC. So now we're the Ground Vehicle Systems Center. So we are uh, our focus is on research and development of military ground vehicles. Um, we also get involved from time to time in small UAS kinds of activities, but it's focused on uh, research and development of military vehicles, anything from um, small, like, packbot size, uh, size robots that are... How many of you are familiar with packbots? Most of you? Talons kind of going up. S-Mets. Are you tracking the S... What's going on with S-Mets, most of you? I know the BAE folks are, but, like, are the... 
other, other folks, small businesses? Are you guys tracking SMETs, RCVs? Does any of those mean anything to you? Robotic combat vehicle? No. Uh, optionally manned fighting vehicle? Do those mean anything? Um, so the exciting thing about Army Robotics now, for, for quite a while we were stuck in sort of a do loop where there were not requirements generated, there's no requirements, there's no program of record, no program of record, no funding, acquisition, where the, the big money is in acquisition programs. So I think we've finally broken that, it's taken a while. Uh, my boss, um, Bob Sadowski, I don't know if you... How many of you know him? But uh, he, he was really key in helping break some of that and working a lot with uh, ARCIC, Army, the Army requirements folks. I'm, I'm, I'm happy. Army Futures Command, I think, is going to continue to accelerate that. We'll have the requirements in the robotics area. Um, so over the last uh, 10 years or so, um, a big focus for us has been in the leader-follower technology. Um, you'll, I think you'll have seen that a lot in, in the news and really what we're looking to do there is sort of a entry point, I'll say, into other more autonomous kinds of activities. Um, if you can have a well-defined mission, if you can have clear goals of in, in kind of a limited space of what you're operating in, and you can kind of continue to build those, build upon those, build upon all the sensor integration activities, all the data fusion, et cetera, uh, sorts of activities. Um, we also work a lot with dual-use technologies up in Michigan, so we work with the automotive folks quite a bit. Uh, we've got joint activities in the robotic space with Ford and General Motors in particular. Um, we also work uh, with some of the off-road. Of, of course, we work with the uh, defense uh, contractors, um, but in the other dual-use space, we work a lot with the, uh, so the John Deere's and the Caterpillar's and the Case New Holland's of the world who are working on some of the other off-road autonomy areas. So we kind of run the gamut from little tiny robots up to large robotic tank kinds of kinds of things. So um, there's less uh, less um, programs of record, of course, the larger up you get. And we can talk about that in the, uh, the panel. A lot of that has to do with safety releases and things like that as you add autonomy to systems. Great. Some key, uh, key yeah. technologies or yeah. key challenges? Yeah, key challenges. So very, Just list them, please, and we'll come back to them. So, so I'll just, uh, I'm not going to go through all the key challenges, but... Um, some of the big focus areas we have, uh, so the automotive folks are working a lot on on-road vehicles where you've got nice, well-defined, uh, you've got nice roads that are well-marked. Um, no, you notice that uh, the, the automotive folks tend to have demos in nice, like, sunny places that don't have, you know, snow and things like that covering the lines. Um, but so they're, they're focused largely on the on-road area. Again, you've got nice Google Maps. You've got nice situational awareness uh, we're focusing um, more and more on the off-road area, um, and th those challenges were laid out well by the previous uh, speaker. Um, so that, that's a big one. And then the, another, another thing we're going to be more and more focused on, I think, is the collaborative behaviors between small UASs, vehicle-launched UASs, and autonomous vehicles. I imagine where you are sort of working on pure sort of autonomy or AI rather than intra-device collaboration a key pursuit of your division is data, more data to train the systems. And that really tends to be the holy grail and probably some of the most expensive and some of the more, most challenging areas for training any system to be autonomous. That's why I think what Professor Topko is doing is really um, uh, quite, quite, uh, quite interesting and can potentially remove some of the constraints or help solve some of the constraints that uh, uh, relate to the availability of data. And hopefully I described some of the work correctly. Uh, please take us away with what you're up to and, and what you're doing. All right. So um, I wish I knew where to take it. 
<laughs> so yes, uh, so there's quite a bit of hype. Uh, is that microphone on? Is it working? Yeah. It is working. Sorry, I can hear it. Yeah. So uh, there's quite a bit of hype uh, behind artificial intelligence, which is essentially using data for figuring out what an autonomous system or any other system that needs to use the artificial intelligence. But let's talk about the autonomous systems. Um, and uh, in a good number of things I have written, uh, there is no defense system that can actually supply the data for us to train an artificially intelligent piece of equipment. Um, so we, we have been working on a, an area of artificial intelligence that is called reinforcement learning. So the system tries and fails and then tries to learn from that. And if you look at even toy problems that requires, I don't know, just billions of uh, steps, billions of trials and errors to figure out something, and there is no defense system, there is no physical system that's going to give you that many chances to try and fail and learn from that. Uh, it's just it doesn't even have to be a defense system. There's no physical, em, physically embodied system as opposed to what Google or Facebook deals with or just merely a vision system deals with. There's no physically embodied system that is going to be working in a dynamic environment against an adversary. And there's not going to be an adversary that's going to say, you know what, Let, let's play and then you failed. Let's play again. Let's play again. The adversary is going to probably kill you. So the, the way that to go is that uh, the, the current uh, artificial intelligence training methods merely rely on data. And that's not going to work out. There is no reason to learn from scratch. If we have any domain knowledge, physical knowledge, knowledge that we have, we ought to be able to use knowledge and data hand-to-hand. -hand, and those techniques do not exist at this point. Uh, it just... It, may, it might look stupid, but it is what it is out there. Algorithms that can leverage data and knowledge altogether doesn't exist. Great, thank you. You know, I'm going to go to Paul and then Jerry in that um, in that order, and I'm going to play a little bit of a devil's advocate here. If you look in the world of automotive autonomy, the bloom is off the rose a little bit, if that's the right expression, um, in the sense that what seem to be just around the corner, no pun intended, keeps getting pushed out into the future in terms of the capabilities of, of these systems to actually drive themselves, just as, as an example. And as you mentioned, Paul, those are in, in, in environments where the rules are defined. Uh, there's a map. There's all sorts of constraints, if you will, helpful constraints. What, how are you defining the problem uh, in the Army uh, in a way that both you and folks uh, like Jerry at BA Systems can actually deliver a solution in the, in the immediate term? And if that's really not the objective, what is the horizon at which you're looking to, uh, uh, to develop solutions for? Oh, okay, so regarding automotive hype, um, so I'm not going to mention specific companies. Um, I will say that, so, so it seems like, and, and a lot of the, us in our community have talked about this, it seems like there were some sort of folks have got out in front with the press and said, hey, you know, we're going to have autonomous vehicles, fleets, in, you know, in a year kind of thing, and and that was sort of took a lot of industry hype. Um, and then you had other, fo other folks jumping in saying, hey, us too, we're going to have, you know, level five autonomous vehicles in 2021 or 2020. And we're, we're scratching our head. We're like, why are they saying this? It's not true. We're like, well, must be stock prices, right? They're trying to, <laughs> they're trying to get their, their hype out there. So not to say that there's not good advances going in automotive, but I think the hype definitely kind of jumped ahead. And a lot of that hype had to do with, uh, predictions of things being here sooner than they thought it was, right? 
And a lot of that had to do with these things I talked about earlier, where if you've got in the real world, right, you've got all kinds of environmental conditions, you know, do you have vehicles that can handle all those environmental conditions? Or are you in a nice sunny place where there's no rain, snow, fog, dirt, et cetera, right? Um, so I think that was the f first question. What was the second, second question? How are you constraining down the problem that you're facing, which seems to be a lot broader than what a, what a vehicle, yeah. an automotive yeah. company is facing, yeah. so that you have some progress that you can report in a reasonable time frame? Yeah, so we're, we're taking, a, uh, I'd say, a more of an incremental approach uh, having to do with the leader follower technology, the SMET where it's following waypoint, it's remote control, it's, it's operating at slow speeds around soldiers, making sure that that's safe. Um, for those of you not familiar with the SMET, it's you know roughly the size of like a Volkswagen uh, Beetle kind of size with a flat top that is meant for squads to throw all their backpacks on so that the soldier so that the robot can can take that 80 to 100 pounds off to each soldier and they can kind of go along with them. Um, so we're taking kind of incremental steps and in more I'd say uh, specific, narrowly defined use cases, trying to build towards you know getting to robotic combat vehicles and stuff. But it's it's sort of an incremental approach. Great, thank you. So, Jerry, if you don't mind, pick up that thread, please, from your position as a prime contractor. Uh, where is the opportunity for yourself and certainly for the vendors and maybe the academic community that works with you to make a difference in autonomy on both the defense and commercial environments? Yeah, where, so... Where's uh, the money in the near term? So, so. Yeah, so, um, you know, to kind of give a little bit of a history here. So, BA Systems has been doing autonomy for DOD for 20 years. So the first contract awarded for multi-vehicle cooperative control was in 2001. The first publication for doing this was in 2001, fully decentralized, um, on board, no leader follower over really poor networks. So what problem space was that? That was for the unmanned combat air vehicle program. And BA Systems has been a provider to that for those type of applications. So one of the areas is, is that you do have to figure out. So this doesn't do takeoff and recovery. Right, doesn't shoot off of a uh, off of a CV and uh, recover off of a CV, but up, up and away, and you're in uh, badland country, and they're shooting at you, and you're shooting back. Right, that technology is pretty darn uh, mature today. Um, TRL level eight for dozens of assets. It does not use artificial intelligence. It uses control and estimation theory. So it uses physics-based models because. You, there is no verification validation that you can do with artificial intelligence, and you don't need data sets, but you do need engineering models of how your sensors work, how your vehicle flies. And those are very well characterized because it is using a flight control paradigm. As we fast forward now and providing this for air power, which one would say eight, eight miles a minute, right, um, and every degree matters of every deflection, that's a challenging environment, but it's not as challenging as the ground environment. Ground environment, the terrain, the unpredictability, up and away, 30, you know, above 35,000 feet, you get a pretty consistent environment. You do not have that on the ground. Everywhere in the world is different. The lighting conditions, you know, to, to name the obstacles, the debris, um, you name it. Uh, the other thing is, is that when we started this, we could close our loop. We call this the observe, orient, decide, and act, the OODA loop. We could solve it much faster than any of our adversaries but you can't take that for granted today. So the notions of game theory have to come into these problems. And we have no solution for a game theoretic solution. We can handle three dozen assets, highly complex, sophisticated assets today. We can't handle hundreds or thousands, 
right? So if you take a look at anything that pushes the edge with game theory, and it doesn't matter, all the game theory problems today are toy problems that can be solved. Or you've got what we did for chess and Go and those type of problems, but there was a lot of training data. And as we said, the adversary is not going to provide us the training data, right? If you train on the last war, we know what the outcome is. And so this notion of we need real-time game-theoretic solutions, right, based upon the actual situation, right, there's a big need. Um, anything that allows the algorithms to further scale, right, that's another big need. Um, it's all going to have to be cyber-resilient. So these are all very data-intensive. They're model-intensive. They're going to have to be resilient to someone trying to get inside your algorithms because at the end of the day, if it's a combat vehicle, that combat vehicle has sensors. It also has ammo. And we got to make sure that that's not used against the blue forces as well. So anything in that area. So dual-use-wise, if you take a look at this, game theory, right? Um, you know, I haven't spent a lot of non-military thoughts about game theory. It's a fascinating field. A lot of people have ruined their careers trying to solve closed-form solutions for that. There's great textbooks on the theory. Um, I'm sure if people in the stock market would love to come up with a real-time trading algorithm for game theory and how people are going to do it, um, but we're looking for any of those type of technologies. Scale the problem, make it more cyber-resilient. I think there's a lot to do with formal methods to reduce the amount of flight testing we have to do for verification and validation because we're using a very traditional aerospace and defense. So, you know, predict a hypothesis, put it in the air, did your, the flight results meet model? If so, have confidence in your models and keep expanding. It's too expensive for the complexity that we need to go. So any of those areas. Please go ahead, Paul. Okay. Uh, so, so the unmanned air side has been, um, I think, leading the unmanned ground side, I'll say, in terms of its uh, fielding, in terms of its um, you know, widespread adapt, uh, adaption, adoption. With that said, the the small, especially the small UAS, the vehicle paired UAS technologies, I think is a is a really promising space because that technology is uh, is also booming. Um, I think that offers some unique um, uh, ways to work in coordination with ground systems, whether it be for intelligence, surveillance, recon, situational awareness, even protection of of systems uh, potentially. As long as you know we protect them, make sure they're not easily shot down. But I think it it opens up a lot of opportunities for ve how vehicle paired UASs could enable future developments in ground systems. Great, thank you, Paul. Uh, Dr. Topku. I noticed that Jerry was frequently sort of looking at you when he was talking about a number of things that he was talking about, especially when uh, it sounded to me like when a system is going to autonomously make a decision around lethality, um, it needs to be operating off of something that's provably correct uh, as opposed to a model uh, that's run on a historical set of data sets. Uh, would you mind expanding on that for, uh, for us? I think your uh, work relates to that. This is, seems to be quite interesting. Let me try. First of all, uh, everything Jerry said was just music to my ears from the right. Uh, thanks a lot. Um, yeah. So, uh, so uh, my we, we, my group works on everything Matt's, for example, introduced. We probably are competitors in all those programs, Matt. I'm, we could be on the same team, perhaps, but we, we happen to be competitors. Uh, and we the niche that we have is uh, how we can um, go and affordably develop verifiable autonomous systems. 
and the affordability is verifiability probably is well understood that how we will certify these things, how we will trust them. But the affordability part is that um, the current uh, technology or just the approach for uh, having verifiable or trustworthy systems is testing, 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 testing. And an autonomous system in a dynamic environment, there's just not enough amount of tests that you can run. There's just, it is, it is, I don't know what the right technical term for it is, but it is not practical. Therefore, we have to now insert um, modeling and uh, into this process for, it could be for simulation purposes, but the approaches we take are how we can uh, model something and then go and run uh, an automated algorithm to figure out vulnerabilities of a system. And if you cannot find the vulner any vulnerabilities, if you can argue that the system is tr uh, just, it is not going to pose any safety critical behavior in the field, that is the type of uh, approaches that we try to develop. And it is not going to happen. Uh, just if somebody develops an autonomous system and hands it to you and asks you, go and please verify this thing that's not going to pose any issues for you. That's just impossible because human imagination and human creativity is so much beyond what we can algorithmically or in an automated manner achieve. Uh, this verifiability issue has to come early on in the design flow. And from the first step on, I'm doing these things. And at every step, I almost need to curb my enthusiasm and creativity so that I create something that I can later on verify and trust on. Uh, that's one thing. And the one example that I like using is that I got involved a little bit with the DARPA uh, Urban Challenge and uh, in the Caltech team. And uh, roughly 60 undergrads developed that cars over a period of nine months or so. And it, it ran for a, hundred, a few hundred miles. But at the end of this nine months, nobody had any smallest idea of how this vehicle was going to behave. It was just, it was just running. And that cannot be the way that we develop autonomous systems. We, we curb ourselves and we discipline ourselves from the first point on so that at every step we know exactly what each of these components will do. Um, that's, that's what I'm going to say. That was very good. Thank you. So as anybody in the software business knows, and pretty much what you pointed to, the cost of software is more in the testing frequently than actually the, the coding of the software. And with artificial intelligence systems, you actually have to add a training cost to all of that as well, just looking at it from the financial perspective. And so when I ran into Paul a little earlier, I, we started having a conversation about simulation, um, sort of a little bit of a lateral move here. But uh, Paul, you kind of made me think that you had a lot of good stuff you wanted to talk about uh, on that, on the subject of simulation. Did I read you correctly? Um, so, And the challenge we talked yeah. about, by the way, is that if the challenges are corner cases, then there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem as to what extent is your simulation going to be helpful in capturing a corner case if fundamentally a corner case is something you haven't thought of. Right. So, so there's, there's the idea of, you know, if you could run a million simulations, you run all kinds of edge cases. And by edge cases, it's some, you know, unique world situation. Example could be, you know, you're driving in a vehicle and there's an earthquake and you're on an overpass and the, and the overpass or the road in front of you gives, gives out. You know, it's no longer there. How does the autonomous vehicle handle that, right? So if you're a human driver and you encounter that, hopefully you stop. 
What does autonomous vehicle do? Does it freeze up? Does it notice stop? So those are examples. Um, we're sort of wrestling with how much simulation, where, where do we use simulation versus real world miles? Uh, we're not a, a Google where we can run, you know, millions of miles and you got vehicles all over the U.S. just running constantly. Um, we, uh, we, tr we try to make as much use as we can of, of uh, we use a lot of uh, National Guard bases where we can sort of ha have access to airspaces for this vehicle paired UAS thing I mentioned, but also um, so that we can run miles in sort of a, a controlled area that's not around others, uh, that's not gonna interfere with others. Um, so the pendulum, I think, has swung more toward, a little, uh, how do I say, away from simulation a bit in terms of what we're doing, but I think we're gonna, because of the, the, the cost and hopefully the technology continues to, um, to get better as you get uh, better you know, computational power, better, better software algorithms that are used on these computers, uh, that we can simulate things better and in, you know, uh, with more use cases. But I think if you're gonna if you're gonna really take advantage of AI, you've got to fit, we've got to figure out you know that training data, and I think simulation has to play a key role in that training data. Uh, the simulation I think's got to be pretty darn good though, because you know a lot depends on it, especially when you deal with large combat vehicles. Great, thank you, Paul. Um, excuse me, Jerry. You work in an organization where the bottom line matters, so maybe you can touch on what some of the things you're doing, which are designed to you know sort of borrowing from what Paul and uh, Dr. Topku said, to constrain the cost, uh, constrain the effort associated with delivering a viable system. Yeah, so I'm going to pick up on the modeling thread here. Um, so the famous mathematician, control scientist, uh, Bellman, I believe it was in the late, uh, late 50s, coined the term of curse of dimensionality. And these are for, um, I apologize for geeking out here, non-polynomial hard problems uh, for which you can confirm there's no solution, even if you had a solution. Uh, you cannot confirm that it's optimal. And what's and basically what it says is that these problems, the more dimensions you try to include, the, it grows exponentially. So every element of state that you add to this problem, it grows ex exponentially. What a lot of people forget is that Bellman at the same time also coined the curse of modeling. And you can't model yourself out of this problem um, because you will run out of resources there is no computers that can run it. There's no humans that can program it. You'll spend all your time modeling and actually doing nothing. So, so the analogy we have is that you gotta be very diligent on what, what elements you model and what you're gonna simulate. Uh, truth be told, uh, the aircraft that all of us fly in has never been tested for all the turbulence conditions that it experiences in flight. Never has, never will, because it's an infinite number of turbulence conditions that exist in the world. It would be impossible to model all the turbulence. It would be impossible to test all the turbulence. And I think the biggest missing link that I would suggest we have today is we still have a void in the fundamental theory behind autonomy. What stability means, what robust stability means. And these are something that the aerospace sciences have evolved to. If you go to a nuclear reactor, we have understand that, right? Um, automobiles, the engines, they understand this. Um, we are still have a void in the theory today to do such things. So, um, therefore, in the absence of that, and only time will solve this, is that you have no choice, but you got to apply a lot of subject matter experts, and you're going to have to pick, no kidding, what are the, what are the important first-order drivers to this notion of, is the system just going to a small perturbation tip over, right, that inverted pendulum problem, right, that could cause harm to 
you know, any infinite number of dimensions, or small perturbation, you're going to get a dramatic outcome um, that uh, affects the overall performance. May not hurt someone, right, but could alter, dramatically alter the mission effectiveness that you're going after. So like it or not right now, it's subject matter expert driven and trial and error. And that's the only thing that we have today. Uh, there's not a lot of tools that can guide us in this area. Great. Thank you, Paul. You wanted to add to... Uh... Okay, so this whole area of um, accurate physics-based models of sensors is an interesting one on the ground vehicle side. So as you're dealing with LIDAR, LADAR, LADAR camera, radar, et cetera, as you need for autonomous vehicles, um, do we really have good physics-based models of all those? And I don't think we do. I think that's also an area of, of, of some opportunity. Uh, another thing I wanted to mention for simulation is we've, we've, we've done some interesting things with these things called virtual soldier experiments, where we brought soldiers in, uh, typically uh, right from theater, and we will, um, we'll, we're looking at new TTPs and how some of these systems um, can be used, should be used, some of the decisions they make, some of the things they want to see. And it's often counterintuitive to what the engineers and stuff that are developing these systems uh, would choose or, 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 or would do or how they'd use these systems. So being able to, to have uh, virtual representations of these and kind of some wargaming models uh, that the soldiers can, can play. Can, uh, we, we even do some things with gaming where we give them you know, a certain amount of money, virtual money, and they got, have to pick some of the characteristics they want on these platforms, and they've got a limited amount of money, and they have to make some decisions, and some of those decisions are often counterintuitive to what program managers or engineers on these programs would choose. So this whole area of, of virtual soldier experimentation is an interesting area uh, for simulation also. Great, thank you. I'm going to ask... A little bit of a, I'm going to change the subject a little bit actually for the benefit of our uh, systems level people here. One of the things that everybody talks about in the world of autonomy and, and especially autonomy uh, as, a, as I would say a subfield of AI is the decisions around the edge and the core. What, where does your intelligence sit? How much intelligence do you put close to the sensors and how much intelligence do you leave for uh, whatever happens at the core in your data center? What seems to be really fascinating, just looking at some of the displays there, you know, preparing for this uh, panel, is that in the military context, your core is often mobile as well. Um, in other words, that if you're operating out in the, somewhere, in the, you know, halfway around the world, the concept of what's at the edge and what's at the core and the criticality of latency and all that means that you probably have actually a more complex architecture than a, a commercial uh, system can frequently uh, live with. Why don't I have either Paul or Jerry, you take that, and then I'll call back. Actually, Dr. Topka, would you like to comment on that uh, in the beginning or no? Okay. I have, an, I, have a, I have another one for you at the end, and then we'll go to questions. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so for our applications, um, we have to have the technology that supports whatever CONOPS or TPPs our customer wants to implement. Um, you know, customers would prefer to go back to core if they have the pipes to do it, if it's feasible, but the reality is, is that it's most often not, right? And so um, our philosophy as a company is we always want to start off with the hardest problem, and the hardest problem is to put it at the edge where you have limited processing, you have no comms to limited comms to very poor comms that could be intermittent, and if you can solve that where you don't have the processing power, where you have limited communications, you've got partial information, if you can solve that problem, 
you can solve the core one a lot easier. Taking a centralized, we call them centralized controllers that have, you know, the big, you know, near-perfect information that's non-latent and taking that to the edge, very, very different problem than the reverse. But we have customers, and we have customers that want it all at the edge. We got customers that want to be able, during the mission, to switch. To some customers that they are, because of what's at stake, right, they want it purely core because of the repercussions of, you know, something going wrong, right? So to our perspective, we do all. But we start off with the hardest problem of the most constrained processing with the worst information, with the worst communications, and we have to solve that fully decentralized problem, recognizing that we may be in communications at period of times and without communications for a very, very long time, but we still have to cooperate and uh, achieve a mission effect. Great, thank you. Paul, any comments on that, uh, on the issue of architecture? So, so, so I'll just say, from, so from the automotive perspective, um, so there's sort of two things going on. There's, there's tremendous advancements going on competing at the edge with GPUs and uh, developments that NVIDIA and others have, have come up with um, that's really driving a lot of great advancements in the automotive autonomy area. Um, so some of the, some more of the, let's say the, the Japanese manufacturers are looking at more, uh, more cloud computing and kind of connecting to the cloud and having uh, kind of interrogation from, I think they call it interrogation from the cloud, where if you run into an issue, you reach to the cloud and say, what do I do? And there's like, you know, command, command centers or customer service, whatever they're called, that kind of guide the vehicle of how to handle that situation. Um, we're taking... Um, so, so there, there's programs that we're involved with with DARPA. Uh, Code is one. Um, CESU is another one um, that are looking at what happens if this is the exact same challenge here. If your your communications go down, if you're in a GPS denied area, if uh, uh, you don't have access to to the network like you need to, can the vehicle or the small can the UAS or ground unmanned ground vehicle make some decisions on its own? Uh, based upon that, and there they're running like real-time simulations of some what-ifs um, in some of those those sorts of applications. It's pretty uh, pretty exciting. So I, I think we're we're hoping and we're trying to do more uh, computing at the tactical edge as as best we can, um, because we don't we we may or may not always have access to the cloud like we want. Great, thank you. So, Dr. Topku, all this stuff could be counterproductive if it's not secure. And if there isn't some mechanism to validate that these autonomous systems are going to perform in a wide variety of uh, use cases, talk to us about those two issues, please. Two issues, security and, security and, and the use cases. Uh, that, and the use cases, which to my mind is almost, uh, there's an overlap uh, in those two issues. One use case is where it's, where it's under cyber attack, right? That the system needs to be secure in that, yeah. in that so, use case. Uh, I honestly don't know much about the security, but I can share my two cents on that. So, um, yes, it is a real um, uh, real challenge. And uh, somebody coming and tapping on, on your network or communication and starting to feed uh, false information or just, just eavesdropping, all those things are, uh, are, could, could, could have uh, significant consequences. Uh, but I think... Even uh, without that, merely somebody sitting uh, at some corner and watching how your vehicle is operating might carry quite a bit of information uh, without uh, using any high, tech, high technology. 
and uh, might be able to uh, infer uh, mission or safety critical information that you want to protect. And uh, we can actually even uh, think about these problems, security-related problems on the physical side uh, without uh, dealing with communication. Uh, I, I, I agree. Those are extremely challenging problems. Um, and um, some of them might be uh, solvable at the, uh, merely the communication or computing level. And some of them might have to look into the physical embodiment of what you are doing and how you are operating. And, um, and the acknowledgement of that they are hard problems is the only insight that I can offer. And if anybody tells you that they can offer more, they are probably uh, not being honest with you. Uh, so uh, that, with that acknowledgement, the second case was the use cases, right? Uh, yeah, you, you are just, uh, with that, you are increasing already the tremendously large um, design space or the possibilities that you would have to uh, uh, figure out that or ensure that your system is going to operate safely or properly. Uh, you're adding to it. And um, it is a larger space. Uh, we, we talked about curse of dimensionality. There are just, that dimension has just grown. And it has not only grown with that in a naive manner, but also in, that, in these new dimensions, there's, there's possibly a very smart, clever, malicious actor that is trying to intentionally uh, fool you rather than just the, the disturbances that you might get from outside that, that may affect your operation, but may not be acting or playing against you, as in the game theoretic manner Jerry mentioned. Um, unfortunately, yes, it is a challenge. And unfortunately, yes, it tremendously grows the amount of use cases that we have to deal with. And um, that's all I can say. Uh, this is, this, these are open problems. Sounds like plenty of money to be made. That's all good news. <laughs> plenty of money, yes. Uh, yeah. I, I noticed that uh, you did not ask me the question where the money is. That was a wise choice. I, 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 I <laughs> you just told us. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Um, I think, should we turn it over for uh, questions from the audience? Please, sir. Go ahead, and I'll repeat the question. So the question is essentially the feedback loop between simulation and uh, field learning. Okay, so if you're talking uh, AI and machine learning, so so that field is really in its infancy, as you as it relates to, let's say, military uh, systems, especially, and I think automotive too. Um, so there's a lot of things to be worked out, including that bridge that you had mentioned. That's that. I mean, that that's definitely a, a gap and something to work through. And again, the field's in its infancy and. If we have this conversation in a year, I, I'm confident it'll get better, but I'd still look big gap. You had your list of priorities. Would that be high on that list, or would it be down, you know, 150 down on the list? I'll say it's fairly high. Um, it's fairly high because people see that there's a lot of opportunities and um, there's a lot of attention faced, uh, focused on artificial intelligence as well as how modeling and simulation can help. So I'd say it's, it's pretty high on that list. I don't know that it's number one on the list, but it's pretty high. So I'm um, going to rewind the clock here, go back to about the year 2000 UCAF program. They started off with an uh, expert system in that program. Uh, there was, uh, in the 80s, there was a pilot associate program. In the 90s, there was a rotor uh, pilot associate program. Both were expert systems. So they started off, you had four aircraft, 12 threats in a geographic area the size of Austin, Texas. 
and they asked the experts enumerate all the potential tactics that those four aircraft would potentially employ against a dozen threats. And the truth of the matter is, is they came back and they said that's impossible because of all the different random environmental conditions and what the adversary can do, it's an unbound, countable problem. So this becomes the challenge is that if you try to do the reinforced learning and the training, right, you're already starting off with an unbound potential outcome set. And this is where this becomes extremely difficult to use and apply those type of approaches. You let alone to bring it back to modeling and simulation, right, to replicate that, right? Because some instances they want to use the simulation to generate training data and vice versa. And you'll end up in this do loop where you'll never end. You will continuously try to, you'll come, someone will come up with a new tactic because they saw something, right? And then you got to go implement that and then you got to go train that. And the whole premise of that is it's unbounded, right? The analogy I would have is for the commercial industry. By the way, there is a subset of the commercial industry that is using AI-based approaches for autonomous cars, but there is a portion of the industry that's using control theory, right? There's actually, a, and what you hear on the news is the AI-based, right? The control theorists are relatively quiet about their approaches. But there's a company called, I believe the name is Mighty AI. And their job is that they put out a a request for people, and I'll use the example that they showed me. They want pictures of parking cones. And they want pictures of parking cones from all over the world. So a parking cone in Bangalore, India, looks different than a parking cone in Austin, Texas because of the sky. And then a parking cone next to a potted plant looks different than that of a parking cone against a barrier. And on it goes. There's an infinite number of images of parking cones to try to train your AI algorithm, don't hit parking cone. And it never ends. Yeah, but you mentioned that you need to pick wisely what you model, what you put in your model. And so it's not an attempt to, to go down this infinite loop and get lost. Yeah, you got to stop at some point. But how do you intelligently know what to do? Yeah. So I would suggest the following, is that if I just wanted an autonomous car to go up and down I-35, I would go to the state of Texas and, tell, and ask them, please use a standard parking cone. Only use this parking cone. And if you guarantee me that you will only use that parking cone on I-35, I'm confident I could probably train my algorithm not to hit that parking cone. That's where it goes both ways. But that's a, what we call a cooperative problem. And the challenge you have is that in the art of war, the other side is not cooperating. Great. Thank you. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Over here. Uh, please do. And if you could just uh, 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 paraphrase the question for the uh, online audience. Oh, really? Uh, that's why I'm having you do it. It went so, over my head. Uh, <laughs> could, would you like to do the honors? No, of no I just said it went over my All head. Right, so <laughs> I believe the question is, uh, could we um, uh, represent, extract and represent knowledge at a higher level of abstraction and take advantage of that in all like, these things like that we are that. discussing? So yeah, I, I, I'm not a SysML guy. You, you mentioned SysMI, uh, SysML, and I, I, I actually get nervous when I see those things. Um, yet, I actually agree with you on that. Um, if you look at reinforcement learning used for um, that 
used in whatever successful applications they have and try to apply it in an autonomous driving setting. What it boils down to is actually you are learning everything from scratch. Every time you do something, you are even learning that, uh, the, the driving rules from scratch. Leave alone this SML and modeling or complicated modeling, it will be great to capture the knowledge in the driving rules and just embed that into whatever you want to do. Uh, with that, you, you would probably be able to even get quite a bit of coverage, prune out the design space quite a bit. The amount of learning that you have to do would be uh, much smaller. So uh, we have an uh, Air Force project on that, which is essentially we want to be able to learn because uh, an aircraft, an unmanned vehicle, going through a, a catastrophic event, everything changes. Just the model changes. There is no, nobody had even flown that thing ever, and nobody's going to ever fly that thing in that configuration again. But some learning has to take place. The only thing that you have is just this one flight extremely outside the paradigm of current reinforcement learning algorithms. And in that case, we believe that the underlying physics-based knowledge, the task-based, the mission knowledge that you have should be able to use to prune the learning, uh, the, the amount of learning that you have to do. And I, I completely believe that knowledge, in whatever favorite form that you have to represent knowledge, has to be taken advantage of in, in, in all these systems. So we're we're trying to capture um, some of these some of these these experts' decisions and some of the approaches we're taking with um, Rossm. Um, you familiar with Rossm, the militarized version of Ross? Um, this this thing we have an autonomy stack that we've been developing that captures a lot of the knowledge from program to program. Uh, we also have this thing called the robotic uh, RTK robotic technology kernel that is supposed to be a, a, a sort of a collaborative and collaborative space that uh, are lessons learned so you're not having to recreate from scratch every time. So we're trying to trying to take a multi-pronged approach to try to do that. I don't, I don't know. Hopefully we're successful and I think things are going well, but it's a good point. Do we have time for another question? Anybody have a question? Uh, back there, sir. Right. So the question is, is there a local flavor to the various teams that are geographically dispersed around the country as far as autonomy is concerned? And I'll this is a go great point to open the discussion to the audience. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, honestly, I, I just don't know. Uh, I did not even know that there was a difference between Kendall Square and Palo Alto. Uh, uh, and who, who, is the, who are the players of autonomy here in Austin, aren't you guys the players? Did you? I am. I am a poor faculty member at University <laughs> of Texas. I'll, I'll provide one insight into that, sort of from the Silicon Valley perspective. I think a um, a limitation of the approach from Silicon Valley is people there tend to view everything as a software problem, and that the software can resolve all issues associated with any shortcomings from the sensor on up. In fact, I sold a couple robotics companies to, uh, to Google um, and a few years ago when they bought a batch of five on the same day, et cetera. And what they tried to do is essentially make the core, the processing in the core, compensate for um, all the usual techniques like uh, sensor fusion, et cetera, that everybody else was pursuing. They did that with their own original autonomous vehicle. Remember the Priuses that only had a LiDAR uh, on top? And, and that approach has turned out to be essentially uh, ineffective 
And so that's one approach. That I think the software is, will solve everything approach is something that I know that tends to run in the Silicon Valley DNA. I don't know if it's different. Uh, maybe in Michigan, uh, the DNA is a little different. I think I see a lot of, I don't know about, well, maybe it's also geographic, but I definitely see groupthink going on in industries. Uh, whether you talk about, say, the, the, the folks who make buses, the people who make... Uh, um, passenger vehicles, the folks who do uh, agriculture, mining, I think you, you kind of see, from my perspective, you see some market leaders and then kind of some group think that goes along with that. Um, I, I think different areas tend to have different risk aversion too. Uh, I don't want to stereotype necessarily, but um, in Michigan, they tend to, the automotive folks tend to be a little bit more risk averse unless they're kind of pushed. If you've got folks from Silicon Valley pushing them, then they start trying to, you know, if they see potential for market share loss and things like that. Uh, I think some of that could drive some behaviors. Um, but I think you definitely see groupthink um, by industry related to autonomous stuff. The one thing I'd offer is that if you, if you take a look at the different companies that have cropped up to do the autonomous cars uh, today for the commercial applications, it's amazing to see how many of them trace their roots back to the uh, DARPA Grand Challenge in those events. And so if you trace what Cornell's was researching at the time and the graduates from Cornell, lo and behold, their technology is very similar to what they studied at Cornell. And the same thing goes to MIT, the MIT team, the same thing goes to the Stanford team. And so autonomy is from MIT, therefore there's a very hierarchical, more control theory-based uh, approach versus the Stanford approach. And so to me, that's where I always will do is I'll follow, go back to the grand challenge. And I heard uh, even references here as well. To me, that's what drives the flavor, right? It actually went back to DARPA and those grand challenges they did and which, what research institute they came from and what was the flavor of focus at those institutes. Great. Thank you. Uh, we have a Two of our uh, panelists have come a long way to be with you, uh, and uh, we have a local representative. Let's give them all a, a good hand, because they really gave us some very good insights. And I'd just like to thank uh, Ali as well for coming out from California. We got a, a ton of wings and mac and cheese and salad over there. Don't make us take it home. Um, and, and please, we've got the space for uh, till 8 o'clock. Uh, the panel should be able to, to hang around for a little bit for individual questions so you can come talk to us. And uh, thank you for coming and enjoy the rest of your evening. Isn't it great to let someone else do the thinking for you? Keep indulging yourself. Click subscribe. Subscribe with a little button in your podcast app or click the three dots in the little circle. Or visit us at gtkpartners.com. <laughs>